It's been great to be with you for a, a few days. I was able to visit uh, some of your classes here, meet with your faculty and staff. We've had some great, uh, very interesting discussions in, in some of the classes. So I've really enjoyed being on a campus where I get to interact with students. Most of my time has spent interacting with provosts like Scott Motes and others. So it's fun to be with students uh, for, for a bit as well. Uh, so what I'd like to do, I'm going to give a brief uh, just review of Wednesday uh, morning's talk, or at least of the, the foundation, what I, when I talk about, when I talk about living stories or living uh, subversive stories in the culture uh, that we live in, and then I'll get to our particular topic for today, which uh, I, I think will be relevant to Crown College students. Uh, one of the classes uh, yesterday morning I met with, I basically used you as my focus group and guinea pigs to learn more about uh, community here at Crown, so uh, hopefully I benefited from that. Uh, discussion and, and hopefully my talk did as well. So my first point on Wednesday was that we are wired for story, that stories define us and give meaning to our lives. Uh, I said that stories have a formative effect on, a, on us. By that I mean that the stories, the roles that we play, that we live. Uh, yesterday, if, uh, if you were, uh, you probably wore a Halloween costume. If you were uh, to wear that costume and play that role on a repeated, ongoing basis, uh, that would end up forming you in a certain direction. Uh, fortunately, we only wear costumes generally one, one day a year. We see this in sports, uh, how our bodies actually conform or adapt to, to the roles in, in, the, in the, the actions that we perform repeatedly. So if you were around here Wednesday evening, I showed you a slide of Rafael Nadal, uh, a world champion tennis player, uh, who has played tennis for his whole life uh, and has played left-handed, which is why if you look at this uh, photo of Rafael Nadal, his left arm is significantly larger and more developed than his right arm is. So our bodies actually change in response to the activities that we perform repeatedly. And I would suggest that this happens at a deeper level as well in our spiritual and intellectual lives. So I shared with you Jamie Smith, uh, the philosopher's uh, observation that not only do our beliefs impact our actions, but in fact what we do, our actions, uh, shape our beliefs and our, our understanding uh, of the world. Uh, so I, I shared this uh, a rather interesting little cartoon. It's not necessarily a funny cartoon, but it is uh, profound in some ways. Uh, that is that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are most difficult to see and talk about. So just as uh, a fish that, that spends its entire life in water doesn't really recognize or know what water is, so we live in a cultural stream that gently pushes us to live out certain stories without us always noticing it. So, for example, if you've ever gone intertubing down a river, uh, that's not me, by the way, but uh, I wish it were uh, sometime soon or at least next summer, not in the near uh, the future months here. But if you're, if you're tubing down a river, if, you all, if all you do is look at the water around you, it looks as if you're not going anywhere. Uh, however, if you, look, if you lift your gaze and look at the bank, you realize that, in fact, the water has been pushing you in a certain direction. And so I would suggest that our culture is, has a similar function, that... Uh, whether we notice it or not, that our culture pushes us in, in certain directions. So we, uh, we looked at how a culture of achievement pushes us to, to think of life as one of success and achievement, and a culture of distraction uh, can lead us uh, to, to live distracted lives that can make it more difficult to focus on the, the still small voice uh, of, the, of God and of the Holy Spirit. Which is why I brought up this verse from Romans chapter 12. Uh, in my paraphrase of it, don't let the roles of this world 
become your main story, but be transformed so that you can discern, discern the story that God would have you play in the world. Uh, so uh, today, as we look at this topic, we'll be looking at this notion of community. And uh, I would suggest that we need to learn what it means as Christians to live together in a culture of isolation, a culture that pushes us toward isolation in some interesting ways, as we'll see. Uh, so now uh, an admission, uh, I've only been telling part of the truth these past few days. I've been leaving a big ingredient out of this notion of culture and culture pushing us in certain ways. It's not just the actions that we perform repeatedly that shape who we are. It's what we do together with other people in community that most powerfully shapes who we are. How we, view our, how we view ourselves and the world and how we act in it are predominantly shaped by the communities that we inhabit. Now, this is pretty obvious. I hardly need to support it, but let me illustrate it in a couple ways nonetheless. So on, um, so on Wednesday, I told you a story about my life as a sixth grader. It wasn't the best uh, story I'm most proud of as a sixth grader. Uh, this is a picture of me uh, probably a couple years after sixth grade. I don't know the actual date. I'm on the far left uh, in the Adidas t-shirt and the short shorts and the hair parted uh, in the middle and feathered back, which is what you did back in the, I guess this was probably the 70s. So this is a family vacation photo. What, um, what strikes me about this photo is how sad everybody looks. We're on vacation and everyone just looks so somber uh, and serious about things. But we, I think we had a good vacation. I don't remember that. But what I find interesting about this photo is uh, how during this time in my life, for one, I thought wearing Adidas t-shirt every day of the week was really cool. I, I went to my freshman year of high school. I had a different color of Adidas t-shirt that I wore to school every day. Go figure. That was a cool thing to do. And, of course, short shorts, but also uh, parting your hair in the middle and feathering it back uh, was something that I thought was cool to do. Now, why did I think this was uh, in fashion or th this was cool, a cool thing to do? Uh, because I existed in a certain social group, uh, an era in which these uh, were our understandings or notions of fashion. Now, before you laugh at this, think about current fashions. So the idea, and someday your children will see pictures, uh, if, you, if you wear such uh, fashions like this, uh, of you and ask, why were you wearing you know, $100 or $200 jeans, on how much these cost, with holes in them? And you'll try to explain to them that at this point in time, in your community, your social group, this was actually uh, what, what cool people did. Uh, but it won't make sense to them because they live in a different community, a different place and time, a different culture. So our notions of fashion are, are heavily shaped by the communities that we inhabit. Now, this might be simply amusing uh, in the realm of fashion. However, in other realms, it can be uh, rather uh, not, not so funny. So consider this letter from a German businessman to his home office, uh, written earlier in the 20th century. Uh, so Mr. Crone calls to say that he was summoned to meet with Mr. Uh, Kammer and to report on his inspection of the facilities. Uh, it goes on. Uh, we have an issue with double, double muffin ovens that are in operation. Uh, we need to increase the capacity. Uh, so it is appropriate that I come to Berlin on Thursday morning in order to discuss further deliveries. So this is the stuff of regular bis business, supply, demand, uh, working on um, you know, supply chains, that sort of thing. Except, if you look further, this is a business letter uh, by a company that was responsible for making gas chambers and crematoriums for Auschwitz during the Holocaust. Uh, so notice the insertion of a couple of additional phrases here. 
So my question is, how could a businessman engage so casually in actions that contributed to genocide? It's because he inhabited a society that conditioned him to think that helping to build gas chambers to kill Jews and others was normal. What seems monstrous to us, and rightly so, seemed perfectly normal to many Germans in the 1940s, even German Christians, I'm ashamed to admit. So when Paul tells us to not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, we have a problem. Like it or not, our minds, along with our emotions and actions, are profoundly shaped by the communities that we inhabit. Thus, as Christians who take Paul's uh, admonitions in the Bible seriously, we have two options. One is to summon up all of our willpower and try to somehow will ourselves out of our particular culture and social group. So, for example, as a high school freshman, I could have tried to force myself into believing 10 years ahead of everyone else that wearing long shorts rather than short shorts was cool, but it probably wouldn't have worked. Fortunately, there's a second approach, and it's one that Christians have taken from the beginning. We may not be able to free ourselves completely from adopting the ways of our surrounding communities, but we can choose what communities we inhabit. In other words, there's something that we often forget when we read the New Testament, the book of Romans, for example. Paul is not writing to an individual, but to communities. Romans actually, after all, ends with an S. Uh, And he says, my brothers and sisters, present your lives as living sacrifices. In other words, we are being transformed as a group uh, in Christ's image, not as a random collection of individuals. So from the early church on, Christians have understood that if they're going to live a different story from the rest of the world, they need to live in community. So what does it look like to create alternative communities? So to explore that, let's go way back to the early Middle Ages and meet a guy named Benedict of Nursia. This is St. Benedict. Now, Uh, Benedict was born uh, into the family of a Roman nobleman during the late Roman Empire. So this is around 480 AD. So if you remember your world civ, uh, this is the time of the barbarian invasions and the sack of Rome and Visigoths and Ostrogoths and all that crazy stuff. So when Benedict was around 20, his father sent him to study in Rome. Benedict was a devout Christian and he became disappointed with the bustle, decay, and immorality of the city. Eventually, he left Rome, and for the next three years, he lived as a hermit in a cave in the mountains of central Italy. Now, during these years, Benedict's reputation as a holy man spread. This was a time when some Christians were forming communities to live apart from the chaos and violence of the late Roman Empire, and eventually, the monks at a nearby monastery asked Benedict to come and become their leader. Benedict assumed leadership of this monastery and eventually founded 12 monasteries throughout Italy and eventually they spread into the rest of Europe as well. Now, Benedict wasn't the only person founding monasteries at this time. What made him significant was the so-called rule of St. Benedict. In a chaotic world of the late Roman Empire, Benedict believed that Christians needed to form themselves into communities uh, with, uh, with strong senses of order in order to preserve Christian practices. So he prescribed a set of daily rules centered around two dominant values, that of prayer and work. So let me give you some examples of the rules of St. Benedict. Uh, The first one, obey the abbot in all things. Speak moderately when you are spoken to. No buffoonery allowed, he said. I'm not sure exactly what buffoonery means, but I like the word, and they they prohibited buffoonery. Sleep in your monk's cloak so you're ready to rise early in the morning for prayers. 
take your turn in the kitchen, always a good rule. Assign one monk to read aloud during meals so as to use the time most effectively. Do manual labor at least five hours a day. If you make something of value, you can sell it, but keep your prices low. Don't, don't gouge people on prices. And finally, offer hospitality to any guests who may be uh, in the area who needs assistance and hospitality. So while the Benedictines lived together in communities, their purpose was always outward focused, to preserve and advance Christian society at a time in which culture and learning were collapsing. They call it the Dark Ages for a reason. Eventually, work for the monks came to include intellectual labor as well as manual labor. Monks became the copyists, the translators, the preservers of culture, of classical civilization at a time when learning was evaporating. The reason we have a written Bible today is largely because of monks and monasteries who spent countless hours copying manuscripts by hand. Led by people like Benedict, Christian monks spread out across Europe and provided the foundation for the Christian Middle Ages, which eventually emerged out of the ashes of the Roman Empire. So Benedict can serve as an early example of Christians who formed communities that provided a means for believers to remain faithful amid a hostile culture. Now, you're probably not planning to spend the rest of your life in a commune, however, so fortunately there are other examples of how Christians can live in community. So let me turn to a more recent example. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we talked about him in some of your classes, and you may have come across his writings uh, during your time here at Crown. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Berlin, in Germany, in 1906 into a wealthy family. His father was a prominent scientist and professor at the University of Berlin, which was the Harvard of the day in Germany. During his teen years, Dietrich decided to study theology and to become a pastor. So at age 18, he started college at the University of Berlin. Apparently, he was a good student. Three years later, he had graduated with a, with a degree, uh, with a doctorate in honors in theology and began training to be a pastor. Of course, uh, during, this is uh, the early 1900s, so these were tumultuous times in Germany. Just as St. Benedict came of age during the collapse of the Roman Empire, Bonhoeffer's young adult years saw the collapse of German society and the rise of the Nazis to power led by Adolf Hitler, of course. So once in office, the Nazis began to tighten their stranglehold on power. They placed the Lutheran Church under the control of the government. Eventually, they passed a law that only, quote, racially pure Germans could serve as pastors, and they sought to have pastors acknowledge Hitler as the head of the church. So during this time, Bonhoeffer helped to start a resistance movement among pastors that became known as the Confessing Church, which confessed Christ as the head of the church, not Hitler. As the persecution of Jews increased, Bonhoeffer came to believe that Christians were called not just to help the oppressed, but to actually stop the oppression itself. He penned this famous remark, We are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. In other words, we're to resist the system, and this led him into some pretty significant directions. So at the onset of World War II, as news began to circulate about Nazi death camps where Jews and other undesirable groups were being killed, Bonhoeffer participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, the plot failed, of course. The SS investigated the plot, and letters discovered in the desk of one of the conspirators implicated Bonhoeffer. So in April 40, 1945, he was taken to Flossenburg concentration camp, uh, and he was executed on April 9th, just two weeks before American troops liberated the camp. So the question is, where did Bonhoeffer find the courage to oppose the Nazi regime 
while the vast majority of Christians simply went along? Well, I would suggest it was from his involvement in Christian community. So back in the 1930s, as the Nazi grip on power was increasing, Bonhoeffer started an underground seminary in Finkenwald to train confessing church pastors. In 1937, the Gestapo closed the seminary and arrested 27 of the pastors and former students. So Bonhoeffer spent the next two years traveling in secret from one German village to another, conducting what he called seminary on the run, or training pastors underground. Eventually, the Nazis grew tired of Bonhoeffer's persistent opposition, and they threw him in jail, and later that led, to, uh, obviously, to his execution. So based on these experiences, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called, interestingly enough, Life Together. I've seen a lot of Life Together posters here around campus, and uh, you students yesterday taught me or explained to me a little bit more about uh, the small group um, uh, initiative that Life Together uh, consists of. So you've probably seen this, this title as well. Uh, Well, Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, was an argument that if Christians were going to resist the pressures of secular society, they needed to develop a deeper sense of Christian community. Unlike Benedict, however, Bonhoeffer believed that while Christians needed to form strong spiritual communities, their physical place was in the world. So he had this rather interesting remark here. He wrote this in, in Life Together. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. So what about us today? What does it mean to do life together as Christians in our place and time? Well, first of all, to go back to the culture theme, we need to recognize the challenges that we're up against, which gets to the second half of my title, uh, a culture of isolation. I would suggest that we live in a culture of isolation in which the practices of real community are increasingly problematic. So why would I claim that? After all, we have people all around us. Most of us live in cities or suburbs. Uh, we don't live um, you know, out on the prairie uh, next to Lake Wobegon. Some of us do, but not everyone. So I would say this because as Sherry Turkle uh, has described it, uh, we, our culture of technology has made it possible uh, to be alone together. And she has a, a fascinating book called Alone Together. In a world of constant connection on the internet, virtual relationships through text and images can come to replace real ones. Now, I was working on this talk a week or so ago in my local Starbucks, and fortunately, it's right next to the high school, uh, which gets out about 3.30 or 4 o'clock, so we get unindated with with high school students. So fortunately, a group of high school uh, girls came into Starbucks and illustrated my point that I was trying to make perfectly. So I pulled out my phone and snapped a little photo and thought, here's, here's alone together, a perfect, a vivid de- depiction of what it means to be together, but to be in your own little world at the same time. So relationships mediated through a device are safer and more manageable than dealing with real people in real time. As Sherry Turkle writes, quote, when one becomes accustomed to virtual companionship without demands, life with people may seem overwhelming. We put our perfect self or our life on Facebook or Instagram and comment and like other people's experiences. As the number of texts and images grow, so too does our sense of isolation from real people. So I find it interesting. If you notice what Google Maps has done to our ability to actually use maps and drive uh, 
uh, on our own. Uh, you've probably read stories of people driving a car into a lake because Google Maps told them this is where you're supposed to drive, so they follow Google Maps. So I wonder, could it be that Instagram is doing the same thing to our ability to carry on a meaningful conversation? Is there a relational equivalent of driving your car into a lake because Google Maps told you to go there? So a modern culture of isolation poses a challenge to Christians, but also an opportunity. God has wired human beings for real, authentic relationships. Our souls know the difference between a text conversation with emotions and emoticons and a real conversation over coffee with smiles and frowns. When Christians demonstrate authentic community, it draws people's attention. The early church grew rapidly not because of catchy worship choruses, but because churches provided people with a place of belonging amid a rapidly disintegrating society. So that brings us to Crown College. Uh, How can we at Crown and elsewhere in our Christian life actually practice intentional community in a world of isolation? Uh, Well, I've been here for a couple of days, and I've seen, for one thing, just the the, the wonderful opportunity you have uh, in many ways because of the the facility itself where faculty offices and classrooms and the gym and student development and chapel, everything is kind of mashed together in one uh, big building or connected building at least. I've gotten lost plenty of times in the last few days. You probably did too when you first came here. Uh, And so that really provides a great opportunity for community in ways that uh, a lot of schools that I visit don't have. Uh, So I think it's important to take advantage of these opportunities. Uh, So let me make a few observations uh, based on, uh, or some, uh, I guess some suggestions uh, based on some observations that I've, I've had over the past couple of days. Okay. The first is we need to move from a bubble mentality, and I'm sure at any Christian college I visit, people talk about the bubble or complain about being in a Christian bubble, uh, but move from a bubble mentality to what I would call a huddle mentality. And since we're in Minnesota, I was going to pick the Chicago Bears, but I wanted to adapt to my culture, uh, the cultural stream that I'm in, so I used the Minnesota Vikings uh, instead of the Bears. I find it interesting, Crown's colors are, are purple just like the Vikings. Is there a reason for that? or just I don't know if that's coincidental or if there, there was some intention there. Um, so let me put it this way. Uh, we need to, as I would suggest, develop a healthy rhythm of being in community and also being in the world and moving back and forth between the two. Okay? A bubble is simply that, an isolated bubble that doesn't move anywhere. If you think about a huddle in football, however, uh, you gather you encourage each other. I don't know if they still do that or not, but at least when I played football, you put your hands in and say break and, and all that stuff. But you call a play. Uh, you plan your strategy. Uh, then you go out. You run the play. Uh, you go back, huddle again, call another play, and go back out and run that play. So that, that back and forth of in, com- in community and out uh, in the world, so to speak, I think is the, the, the natural rhythm of the Christian life. Of course, now we have no-huddle offenses, so that ruins my metaphor, so I don't know how to make sense of a no-huddle offense. So we're going to stick with the huddle. Okay, the, the second observation or suggestion, I guess, would be this. In tight communities, such as Crown College, it's even more important to be intentional about reaching out to those who are different from you. Human nature, uh, it... it it, it affects all of us this way. We tend to gravitate to those who are like us, even on a college campus. 
Uh, our schools talk a lot about diversity, and if you look at the, the PR materials and brochures, uh, we've made a lot of progress in becoming more diverse institutions, and we like to show that in our PR materials. However, uh, I, I then can visit dining rooms when I visit schools, and what you see are the white kids sitting together, the black kids sitting together, the brown kids sitting together, and so on. So the Bible calls us to be different. I know this is a very complicated topic, and, and uh, I don't want to open a can of worms, but hopefully you've had these discussions here at Crown. But as Christians, we're called to be different and to have the courage to go outside our comfort zones to get to know those who are different from us. So diversity lived out is different than just diversity in terms of how many students do we have from this group and how many from that. And I hope you're being intentional about going outside your comfort zone here. And thirdly, I, hopefully this goes without saying, but take advantage of the opportunity to develop relationships with faculty and staff here. Uh, there's a great opportunity you have in having faculty offices right here in the building. You have a captive audience rather than a separate building off uh, to the side somewhere. So back when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, I had an Old Testament professor named John Walton. Now, some of his ideas about the Old Testament didn't really fit well with the rest of the faculty. In fact, he's not at Moody anymore. But they did intrigue me. I got to know him, uh, not real well, but enough to keep an email correspondence with him. So during my graduate school years, when I was struggling to make sense of things like Genesis and evolution and origins and all that, his emails helped me tremendously. Later, when I was a provost, I had Dr. Walton visit my university to talk with students and faculty. He's at Wheaton College now, and while we don't maintain a regular correspondence, whenever I visit the campus, I make it a point to drop in and have a chat. My relationship with Dr. Walton was one of the valuable legacies of my time at Moody. So I hope you're taking advantage of opportunities with, for time with faculty as well. Uh, so now a few suggestions beyond Crown College and thinking about your broader life as a Christian and living in community. Uh, so the first is this, go back, going back to Sherry Turkle's observations. Take time to disconnect from technology and cultivate the skill of personal interaction. Uh, so a couple nights ago when I was uh, doing my Wednesday evening talk, I saw someone with a, the, a box of Settlers of Catan board game going up to play it somewhere. That's a great habit to get into. I'm not a big board game fan myself, but the idea of getting away from technology and finding other ways to interact directly I think is very productive. So I'm sure you've all had the experience of being in a meeting or at a dinner that gets sidetracked by someone's device. Nothing sucks the energy out of a good conversation more than a buzzing phone. Now, this isn't to say, obviously, that all social media is bad. I would just give two cautions when we think about social media and community. The first is this. Social media is great for enhancing real relationships, but not in replacing those relationships. So our daughter, Anna, spent a semester abroad in Uganda a few years ago. Keeping up with her activities on Facebook was great, but it didn't compare to that first minute in Dulles Airport seeing her hug her crying mother. Also, in case you haven't noticed, social media is a lousy way to try to resolve disagreements, especially political ones. Do you have a grumpy uncle who voted for Trump? Pushing that, or posting that new article proving that global warming is real probably won't change his mind. Or do you have a cousin who attends Bernie Sanders rallies? That newly re released study on the merits of free enterprise probably won't convince her to vote for someone else. We can engage in vigorous discussions, but those discussions and disagreements are best done in person rather than posting the, the new article or the next post on, on Facebook or on Instagram. 
Another suggestion is this, and this goes back to my talk on Wednesday. Develop a healthy rhythm of solitude, friendship, and community. We need good doses of each, and we need to know ourselves well enough to know which of these things we need to emphasize more. So let me go back to to Bonhoeffer and an interesting word of advice that he had. Bonhoeffer wrote this. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. A little German melodrama there, but you get the idea. If you're a natural extrovert, this is what I think he's trying to say. If you're a natural extrovert, you need to be intentional about cultivating the ability to be alone with yourself in solitude. This is solitude. It's not loneliness. If you're a natural introvert, you may need to work more at joining groups and getting involved. Those orientation orientation week activities that we introverts dread, they're really not so bad after all. You just have to really work at being engaged in those. So it's not about replacing our natural tendencies, but simply developing a good balance. We all need times of solitude, one-on-one times with close friends, and times in community. And part of developing a healthy Christian life is learning to keep each of them in balance. Which brings me to my final suggestion. And this will be an important one as you move out of Crown College into what we call the real world. I'm still trying to figure out what the real world is, but that's what we talk about. So... Uh, and this is an important advice, I think, for this generation especially. Uh, in your life, you will need to learn to involve yourself in a local church. Now, there's a basic truth of Christianity that, have been a, that I've been avoiding until now. According to the Bible, we're Christians not simply by believing certain things about God, but because we participate in a community that lives in a particular way. That community is called the church. Tish Warren, who we talked about on Wednesday, uh, writes this. Our relationship with God is never less than an intimate relationship with Christ, but it, was always, it is always more than that. Christians throughout history have confessed that it is impossible to have a relationship with Christ outside of a vital relationship with the church, Christ's body, Christ's body and bride. And just as the Christian life is lived out in simple actions on a daily basis, so our commitment to church in general terms is lived out with particular people in physical settings. And the thing about church is it's not always like a college community where you can pick your friends and pick people who are just like you. Like our families, our fellow church members are not always people of our age and choosing. So a few years ago, my wife and I were living in downtown Washington, D.C., and we attended a church in our neighborhood. It was a wonderful church, but also had some quirks. When our daughters would come and visit, they called it the awkward church. Gives you an idea of the kind of church it was. I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that, but from that point on, it became known as the awkward church. So every week in church, we sang the doxology after the offering. There was an elderly gentleman who came by himself each week. At the end of the doxology, he would cup his hands around his mouth and play the amen by blowing into his hands like a trumpet. He also managed to sit right in front of me every week, or at least so it seemed to me. Now, I probably wouldn't choose to friend this person on Facebook or invite him to the local pub for pints on a Thursday night. But every Sunday morning, I would shake his hand and ask him how his week was, and he would ask my wife and I how we were doing. That's the value of local churches as opposed to virtual communities. We don't choose who we interact with. God does. 
And being exposed to such people opens us up beyond our little world and limited realm of experience. So let me conclude briefly here. God calls us to live a different story from that of the secular world. Not to isolate ourselves from the world, but to live differently, Christianly, in the midst of that world. In a culture obsessed with success and achievement, God calls us to live humbly. In a culture of distraction and busyness, God calls us to live simply. But we can't do that on our own. We need friends, mentors, even Christians, even fellow Christians who blow trumpets in their hands. That's why in a culture of isolation, God calls us to live together in community. So I pray that as you move from crown to quote-unquote real life, you will engage in real communities that enable you to live a different and flourishing story in this world. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the time we've had together. I thank you for these wonderful students and faculty and staff here at Crown College. I pray your blessing on them and the the rest of this semester and that they would uh, continue to build and engage in in healthy community uh, and that they would live lives that would honor you amidst the culture that we inhabit. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.